Or should I say, Sawadee Jao? Because today we're talking about Northern Thailand with Tyrell Habakon. Tyrell, welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, in 30 episodes, actually, you're our first Farang guest. But I gather you're fluent in Thai, so I think we're gonna give you a pass on this one. <laughs> Hang on, no, we had a we had a non-Thai on, but you know they they were oh, Asian. Oh, that's true. He, he he was Taiwanese. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Farang. You know. <laughs> Um, and actually, you know, myself, Samai already gave me a pass as well. So, that's why I'm here. Um, so uh, yeah, so today we're going to be looking at quite a wide variety of topics themed around state violence and the judiciary. So Tyrell is a really perfect guest, as she's certainly one of the most prominent writers on these topics. So it's a real pleasure to have you on. And um, of course, it's my—it's also a secondary pleasure for me personally to have another Farang Northerner or Farang Conmuring or whatever we're called on the show. Some strange sense of solidarity there. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to introduce your book that we're going to be talking about at first, it is "Revolution Interrupted: Farmers, Students, Law, and Violence in Northern Thailand," which was published in 2011. And the book is a really fascinating deep dive into a leftist tenant farmers movement in northern Thailand, uh, more specifically in Chiang Mai and Lampoon provinces in uh, 1975, although you do a lot of other background to it. Um, and unlike the communist insurgency, which was going on at the time, this movement was not an insurrectionary one. Rather, the farmers were attempting to work within the legal framework of the state by demanding that existing laws that protected them were actually enforced. However, the movement was nonetheless brutally repressed by the state and its allies. So um, could you maybe start by giving us a deeper overview of this tenant farmers movement and, and tell us why you um, decided to write about it? Sure. Um, so at the, in the mid-1970s, um, the vast majority of farmers in northern Thailand, rather than being landless, which is, is really the situation that people find themselves in today, um, were tenant farmers. And so the, tenant, the premise of tenancy is that the person who works the land um, in exchange for, for working the land shares, shares the harvest with the landlord. The rate of doing so in Northern Thailand was incredibly high, the rate that tenant farmers had to pay. It was often 50% plus the tenant farmer paid expenses. Um, so in other words, much more than 50%. And in some places, even as high as two out of three parts. Um, so there was a long-standing struggle over um, over trying to get some control on tenancy, tenancy rates, tenancy practices by farmers in the north. Actually, sort of first in the 1950s, um, unsuccessfully, and then it comes back. It comes back in the 19 in the 1970s. Um, and I should note that I, when I started to work on the project, I had no idea I was going to be writing what started as a dissertation about land tenancy. I didn't know anything about land tenancy, in fact. Um, the project came from a really 
sort of very simple question and actually a question that if someone today told me they were going to write a dissertation just with that question, I would say that's a terrible idea. Um, but I was interested in learning about what the what the period between Sipsi and Hokdula in the north was right. like. And it came from, it actually it came from a talk that I heard in... Sorry, could we just explain that period to our oh, listeners sure. who may not be aware? <laughs> sure. So, um, so Sipsi Thula, or 14 October, refers to 14 October 1973, when a mass uprising um, ended, at that point, 15 years of dictatorship, um, of military dictatorship, kind of in what appears, you know, if you sort of read about it, it looks like it's sort of one fell swoop, sort of 10 days of protesting and everything falls. In fact, over those 15 years of dictatorship, there was sort of constant, constant struggle, even even though it was really constricted. It opens up this three-year truly remarkable period where people who had been repressed during the last 15 years and even before that all became politically active um, and very resonant with with, process, with movements happening throughout the world. So students, um, workers, uh, there was a strike, at least one strike almost every day, farmers, but also actually artists organized as artists, kindergarten teachers organized as kindergarten teachers, sort of everybody, everybody was organizing. And then it ends really brutally on, um, on Hokdula or 6 October 1976, when one of the many the many coups uh, in recent Thai history took place after a brutal massacre of students um, at Thammasat University in the center of Bangkok. And in 2002, I heard a talk, um, was it two, or maybe 2001, actually, what am I, ah, 2002, a long time ago. Um, I heard a talk by Ajahn Hongchai Winichagun, and he actually gave a talk about uh, about a totally different topic about the Papachai, uh, the Papachai riots and massacre in um, in Yawalat in Bangkok's Chinatown in July of 1974, and he made the really simple point that, as he had already written about at that point, and then wrote a really amazing book that came out last year about the ambiguity and silence surrounding uh, the sixth of October 1976. There were many other silenced silence moments of violence during that period. So so I started with that really fundamental question and then and then quickly learned that um and you hadn't truly had no idea what I was going to write about. Um and and then very quickly learned that the really salient struggle in the north at during that period was around land tenancy and the salient alliances um, were, you know, between students and farmers and then also lawyers and also university professors, whereas in Bangkok it was, you know, it was students and students and workers. Um, so that's, that's where it came from. Yeah. And um, I mean, in the beginning of the book, you talk about how farmers are seen as this kind, these kind of invisible characters in Thailand. Like they they don't want to be seen by the urban elite, yet those same urban elites depend on them economically. And I'm sure a lot of listeners know the saying that, you know, farmers are the backbone of the nation. Um, but we saw this real visceral, like, repulsion among the elite when they had to actually encounter farmers uh, during farmer protest movements. And we, you know, in the book, you know, you say we saw that in the 70s, and certainly we saw that with the red shirt protests as well in the 2000s. 
And um, I think it's a really astute observation about, you know, their invisibility. Could, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. I mean, I think um, farmers are meant to be the backbone of the nation who are never seen and certainly who never act as though they are full subjects or citizens of that nation. Yeah. <laughs> they Farmers are meant to produce um, produce the rice that, that lands on everyone's plate, but um, but they are not imagined by many of the people who eat that rice to be members of the same, equal members of the same, of the same country. And so that's why you have, yeah, I'll stop there. I, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I was, I was telling Gabriel that it reminded me of when my mother would be upset at me for leaving rice on the plate. She'd say, oh, you know, the spirits, the spirits would be very upset. What are you talking about? <laughs> Don't you mean like the people who slaved away in the fields for hours? would be upset and say, I don't know what you're talking about. But, um, no, um, it's, it's interesting in, in the, that the focus of the farmers was within the, the system, you could say, within the system. As, and as you state that, as opposed to the, I guess, the, what was going on at the time, the extra-parliamentary struggle, which was carried out by the CPT and such. Like that. Um, why, why would you say that the, the decision to operate within the system was made uh, what, what what was the main reason that the farmers chose that, that real struggle, would you say? I think because it was, in a sense, as deep a challenge to to the ruling powers as, as extra-parliamentary insurgency was. Um, and that became really clear, uh, in a sense, the violence with which the struggle was met made that, made that really clear. Um, but I think it's because, you know, I think the struggle that farmers engaged in over the law and to be able to use the law as their own tool rather than being only being subject to it was part of, it's part of a struggle that's been going on since 1932 and is still taking place. The law, whether it is tenancy law, whether it is defamation law, whether it is pick, I mean, sort of any body of law in Thailand doesn't belong equally to all the people. Um, and so in that context, simply the act of behaving as if it does is both dangerous um, and threatens to upend the system uh, pretty profoundly. I mean, I think also the decision, in a sense, the decision to focus on the law was was a really practical one. It was made because, um, you know, the the Farmers Federation is founded in November of 74 and the harvest is coming up sort of a month, a month and a half later. And it was literally about farming families having enough rice to eat for the whole year. And so changing the terms of tenancies so that they had that they had that rice from um, from the division of the of the crop. Yeah, and, and just to be clear, this, this law that was already in existence, uh, what the farmers were trying to do, they were trying to have it enforced, it was to, as far as I understand it, to, to stop them from being evicted with such ease because they were living in complete precarity, right? It was that. It was also to change the amount of, the, a big piece of it was to, to limit how much, how much rent could be charged mm. and also to make that a decision that was made by, in each district, um, a group of tenant farmers, landlords, and civil servants. Um, 
and yeah, to put place uh, to put in place measures to protect against eviction, um, and also to create a formal mechanism for redress where if any of the parties had a problem, it would come to a committee um, right. with representatives of everyone of everyone on it. Yeah, I mean it's not tremendously dramatic change. But really, it's, it's is building it? everyday I mean, democracy kind of and thing. building everyday yeah. sort of local control, which is yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was wondering as well, like we, I want to definitely want to talk about some of the people who are involved in this. But first, I actually want to start with the landlords, because I'm quite curious about who these people are. I mean, uh, you know, they're you would imagine descended from the old aristocracy to some degree, certainly very wealthy people. And I imagine, you know, the farmers had been their subjects for, you know, semi gone. I don't know. forever. <laughs> um, and, and this must have seemed like a tremendous threat to them, you know. I think so. And I think here's another place where I sort of have to explain one of the things I've learned in, the, in doing the research for the project and where my ideas about what people hold dear were really challenged. Um, and so I'll talk about the landlords, but actually I'll talk about another sort of account first, okay. which is that um, a colleague was explaining to me he was... Um, he was, he was a, a very like he was a, a young person in the '60s and '70s, and he explained that in the mid 1970s he needed to go see a doctor and he's waiting in the doctor's waiting room and he can hear the conversation that's going on um, inside the consulting room, and he hears a woman say to the doctor, "I need sleeping pills for my husband because my husband is afraid that the communists are going to come at night." and take all of his wealth. Okay. Um, and, and my friend and colleague who told this story, you know, sort of laughed about it and, said, and used it as an illustration of this is what the Cold War felt like. Mm. Um, and when I, I was talking to a student activist from Lampoon who said that his aunt, um, who was actually, she was a pharmacist, but she owned, she owned some land that she collected. Right. Um, that she collected rent on, and she sold her land in 1974 because she was afraid that the communists were going to come in the middle of the night and take it. And, you know, you hear these stories and you think about them 30, 40 years later, and they're really funny because, I mean, you yeah. can't steal, like, you, you know, you can't take away land. It's not like, it's not like grabbing someone's bag or something. It's, you know, it's... <laughs> but I think that that was the... That was in a sense, the, like the lived experience of what it felt like for wealthy and even just sort of upper middle class folks at right. that time. And the reactions of landlords, again, who sort of cover a really wide range from okay. big landlords, you know, descended, likely descended from Zhao of some kind to other people who weren't, but who were, who were capitalists, who had a lot of holdings. Um, also some people who... You know, their sort of their whole family's wealth was in the land that they owned, and so they might not be sort of big. They might not appear as big landowners, but you know, if you have a really big family, then you can be a, a big, a big landowner. Um, I think what I was most surprised by, and then remembered these stories uh, that I had heard about what the fear of communism looked like, and then I started to understand why landlords acted in this way. I mean, the vast majority of landlords reacted to the land tenancy law passage um, with anger 
And my initial sense was that, oh, it's because they're going to have less rice. And that's why they're angry, because they're going to have less to sell um, and less to make money from. And that is definitely a piece of the story. But I think they they were also being challenged in terms of who they were. They thought they were these beneficent wealthy people looking after the poor people around them without, you know, they didn't have an analysis that the whole fact that there exists wealthy people and poor people who need the wealthy people to help them. That is a problem. (laughs) That is a sign of gross inequality, but um, they had never been confronted with that. And so I think it, it hit them sort of, if, if someone was going to write about it today, they would, like it, the affect studies people would love this. They would say, you know, like the affect, the affective experience of that. Um, and I think it led them, like it led them to violence. Um, who they were was changing. Oh, no, so, so basically, um, one thing that I, I often sort of regurgitate is the soft power that the Thai state used um, in their counterinsurgency against the CPT being like, you know, rather than just continuously sending out battalions and platoons to, to hunt down communists or suspected communists, they would also try and deplatform them by saying, you know, if, if they're trying to, um, if, they, if they're working on the basis that they will seize power in order to improve infrastructure, improve welfare, improve um, labor rights, we'll do that first so they don't have a leg to stand on. And um, so I, I guess, you know, they they didn't see themselves as you know giving things beneficially uh, sorry giving things benevolently for the sake of giving things but they did it in a in a real politic type way um, and it, it it seems like you know the people that you described they saw themselves as the opposite they they didn't think that they were doing anything sneaky they just did it because they thought that well you know this is um this is what I'm supposed to do I'm I'm a landowner. My father was a landowner, so uh, I will I will do the nice thing at least of letting them work on it. Um, yeah, you know they can. It also kind of sounds like that law, the the initial law which we're kind of talking about here, that was passed to help the farmers, was kind of part of that plan from the state to a degree. No. So I think the Land Reform Act was that was meant to distribute actually, and it they distributed very little. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but. Um, that that was meant to distribute unused land. A lot of it was actually was crown land um, to farmers. Was absolutely part of that. I think the Land Rent Control Act wasn't, and I think when they passed it, they had no idea what was going to happen because so the law, <laughs> the law first existed was there was first a 1950 version that was um, that was only decreed for use in central Thailand. And then the version passed in 74 applied to the entire country. And I think that, um, I think they had no idea. I think they thought with the Land Reform Act that absolutely this would, I think they thought, oh, this will solve landlessness in various places. And look, we're doing this thing that it seems quite resonant with what, um, with, with what would make the CPT happy. I think... I think they were caught off guard by the kinds of changes prompted by the Land Rent Control Act. So probably we should. So probably we should talk about what the effects were and some of the the people who were involved in this movement. So uh, one of the stories, or one of the people that you mention, is uh, Pa Luang Intra, right? 
Um, could, could you maybe tell his story as a kind of example of somebody who was involved in this movement and how, how they ended up? You know? Yeah, so he, so um, following Inha, Sibun Ryung was the person who, in many ways, if you say farmer struggle in northern Thailand, he's one of the two people who immediately comes to mind. The other is Paluang Siton Yod Ganta. And Inha was a, um, he was a resident of Doisaket. Um, he was a long time, uh, a long time farmer. He had only, he used, the, he used to have, previous to, to the 1970s, his family had a small amount of land, um, but they ultimately needed to sell it. So he was, um, he was a tenant in, in the 1970s. He had been a local leader. Um, so at the time that the Farmers Federation organized, and it organized um, sort of parallel to sort of existing, sort of the existing way in which the landscape is broken up. So, um, so there were representatives when the organization found, was founded in, um, in 74. There were regional, regional groupings and provincial um, and then district, sub-district um, groupings. And he became the president of the Northern Region and the vice president of the national, of the national body. And he was particularly active around, around tenancy and primarily doing, doing grassroots education. Um, he spent a lot of time with a lawyer who was based in Bangkok, but who came to Chiang Mai frequently um, Badap Manut Rasada, and they often, along with um, students from Mithilai Kru or Chiang Mai University, would go and just explain the law to groups of farmers in various villages. Farmers started being assassinated in March of 1975 um, by, and then in uh, in the north, in by June, there was a string of eight assassinations within a two-month period. And Inha was interviewed um, and wrote about this in an issue of Chao Na Thai, Thai Farmer, which was the newspaper of the Farmers' Federation that was actually printed at Chiang Mai University. Um, he explained very eloquently that even after the farmers started being killed, he wasn't going to stop the work that he was doing. And Sorry, can I just briefly interrupt? Um, sure. Who, who was organ? It, I mean, do you know who was organizing the assassinations? Was it was it landlords or, or was it the police or do, do you know? No, that's so. I mean, the thing about the assassinations is that there has never there was one there's never been a prosecution um, mm. in any in any of the cases. Um, there was an arrest made in Inta's case. That's the only time an arrest was made, but the person who was arrested was ultimately let go. Um, you know, the assumption, uh, sort of the working assumption, is that it had to be a combination of landlords working with working with police who were at least willing to turn the other way. Right, um, so the landlords would hire some armed goon or whatever to assassinate yeah. somebody and the police wouldn't do a real investigation. Yes. Out, out, of these, um, out of these eight uh, assassinations, except for the case of Inta, um, were any of them like important figures or they were just farmers in general? Or they, they, were all, they were all, all leaders all of leaders. the FFT. So, yeah. well, that's, that's, that's ballsy. That is, that's well, 
And you can, I mean, the, one of my favorite, like, favorite and like an ironic, I can't believe people would sort of write this kind of way. Um, there's an amazing short article by, um, I can't remember his rank, by a military officer who wrote in Utah Goat, one of the military's journals. It was an article about the killings of the farmers. And what's really striking about it is that it includes a list of, of, um, of all of the assassinations and it lists the name of the person who was killed and then um and then it's instead of saying like following inha who is the president of the of the northern of the northern farmers federation the vice president of the farmers national farmers federation it says following inha who says he was and that's how each one is, each person is described. And it's just, it's so, um, there's not much else in the article. It's very short, but it's just, it's, a, it's incredible to me because it's like, even in their death, they were, um, you know, the, there was this attempt to, to diminish them yeah. once again. So um, could we get back to Palung Inta's case? Mm. Yeah. Um, um, so... Yeah, so he was case. so he was shot in front of his house. His wife had a small like a small convenience store, and on the morning that he was killed, um, she was she was a health volunteer, a village health volunteer. She was at a training, um, and so he was he was there, and a motorcycle with two people on it came, um, and shot him. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, I mean, his his death is sort of the date around which there's there's a really big shift. The farmers' movement goes underground. It becomes partially because this really bizarre series of events happens afterwards, um, where instead of uh, when people protest and call for for the assassins to be arrested, instead they just arrest more farmers and a student. Um, it became really clear, I think. At that point, that it wasn't tenable to struggle above ground anymore. And um, but were all of these assassinations, or were some of them disappearances? There's some disappearances, but actually, um, in other in other parts of the country, um, those the yeah. eight that happened in Chiang Mai then were um, were assassinations. Um, but there's a whole there's this there's this list of a of about 45 various acts of violence. I also suspect it's too short. I mean, this yeah. this list that's around is one that um, that activists at the time put together, um, and then it's been it's been reprinted over and over again. And I just suspect that there were more. You know, there were more people. Like I actually think there's sort of a great project to be done of of you know going through local newspapers over mm. actually you could just say like stay starting in the 1960s and see who's written about as being missing yeah i i think that the thai state generally or, or you know their organs whatever generally after that kind of preferred disappearances right so like i recently wrote an article about haji sulong right mm. and and he was disappeared there, there's quite i don't know there's like they seem to move more towards disappearances because you know that way they can't do it there's not a real investigation or something like that so i think it depends who it is i think when it's the state right. yes it's disappearance but actually i mean there's been a whole string there was a whole string of assassinations um of human rights defenders beginning in 
sort of early Taksin years. And it's, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in that period, people who are, who are opponents of the state are disappeared. People who run afoul of local, you know, local capital or, right. um, or, or even sort of local political interests still tend to be extrajudicially killed. Interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I never, never thought about that. Kind of scary. Mm, <laughs> very. Um, so I, I think it's quite interesting that in this story we have this like it's an issue of lack of law enforcement in that there are laws to protect tenant farmers that aren't being enforced, and then once the farmers start being assassinated for protesting that law, the law suddenly you know it it's not there again to protect them. So. People and you know, there's this kind of trend for people in the West to say about countries like Thailand that they need, you know, to enforce a rule of law or something like that. But even then, I, I kind of disagree with that because we we can see effective law enforcement for stuff like uh, Les Majestés cases, and you know, that's not great. So it seems that you know they only enforce laws when they're a threat to power, right, or, or when they need to. W- would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think there is, uh, Thailand is, there is, there is often rule by law, but it is, in a sense, it is the understanding of the law and how it is imagined and enforced by, by police, by the judiciary, is one actually totally divorced from an idea, sort of a fulsome idea of justice that you would need mm. to have the rule of law. Um, and so it looks, you know, and this is the claim that's made, um, you know, that's, that the Thai government will make officially whenever, um, whenever there's criticism around the use of Article 112 or the Computer Crimes Act um, or the Public Assembly Law. They say, well, we're just enforcing the law. <laughs> and that's true, but... Just very but, selectively. Yeah, and a yeah. question about sort of what is the law who who does it serve is 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 not something they they take up yeah and there's also you know this huge backlog of old laws which lie dormant for years mm. and just to think of one kind of silly example um is uh when i was living in chiang mai there was you know the tm30 thing right so um there's this old law from the 1950s that foreigners have to declare themselves when they enter a new province and it was a silly old law that everyone forgot about and then but the you can be fined 2000 baht if you break this law so Chiang Mai immigration I guess were a bit strapped for cash or they wanted some more money and suddenly they decided oh we're going to start enforcing this law now so every foreigner in Chiang Mai had to pay a fine of 2000 baht now that's just like a silly example and it was quite annoying um but yeah there's this there is this huge backlog of laws that can be enforced at whim right definitely i think um <clears throat> beg your pardon i think something to to sort of think about is that law itself is a very nebulous thing for people who have a life which operates very smoothly so you know you're you live um along um uh, a sucumbit you're up near paragon um the law you you the law you you usually interact with is probably like taxes and maybe the uh, if you park your car in the wrong place um but for certain people around the country you know you you're experiencing 
the the physical the violent uh, manifestation of the justice system or of um, of Thai law, and um, we still see like you know we see these two things sort of working side by side. Obviously, you know the um, the courts and then the the military slash the police. So. Um, how has it since then, uh, since the the seventies? How have these two sort of branches developed, and how is their relationship um, maintained? How have they changed? Say, for example, you know, what's the difference um, between the court systems and the uh, and the police systems? How have they developed since then, and how have uh, how how are they related to each other? I don't think there's been a lot of change. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there hasn't. I, I really think there is, I even think there hasn't been a huge amount of change since 1932. <laughs> um, you know, I, the, <laughs> things are very, they are very much the same in terms of, you know, as you know, sort of who the law gets acted upon. That hasn't changed. Sometimes it changes in the sense that the person who is marginal and subject to the law, that category has changed. But in terms of... You know, I, I think about the struggles that that human rights lawyers have been engaged in actually since since um, since the peace rebellion. Um, they're the same. I mean, the kinds the kinds of cases that are used to silence dissidents haven't changed. The way in which the law is interpreted far in excess of what it actually specifies in order to to try to silence people hasn't hasn't changed and i think a big part of the reason is that the there is i should back up and say the other place you see it is if you look at amnesties amnesty laws and amnesty provisions for coups this is an extremely developed area of jurisprudence in thailand because so many coups but there is um there is a profound memory within the um, within uh, the Gesetika, the Office of the Juridical Council, that drafts all of the laws in Thailand, and so they pull out similar laws, you know, at, at different times when they're needed. Amnesties are a great example. Um, another one is laws around arbitrary detention, which have existed since World War II, and then different different kinds of laws come out. Um, there is the level of legal expertise within the state is profound. I mean, some of the, like, the most brilliant legal minds in the country are at the office of the juridical, juridical council drafting laws. I mean, and doing other, all sorts of really interesting things, actually. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating place, but it's, um, you know, I sometimes feel like one wants to dismiss the repressive state as sort of outdated, outmoded, and not very smart. Unfortunately, I don't think it's any of those things, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) which is concerning. The the Thai government, for, for what they look like on the outside, Real politic has been in their lifeblood for so long, and it it, it, uh, it that that's the real reason I'm afraid of him. People can say, "Oh, look at Priyut, he's an idiot." Yeah, but it's not Priyut I'm afraid about. It's you know, it's everything that props him and his and and the government up. Um, yeah. yeah. Not, not not to get political on this podcast or anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, and also just kind of 
um, yeah, like you, you mentioned the arbitrary detention, you know, and it's it's not just uh, assassinations and disappearances. There's also these kind of like arbitrary detentions and there's torture that happens at the hands of the state, right? So, you know, what can happen after release for survivors if one would try and hold the state or whoever accountable um, for things like being badly treated or held in custody for no legal, you know what I mean, yeah. It's, it's almost impossible. Um, mm. and, and it's almost impossible for two reasons. One is that the structure of law for victims is not very robust. So one example actually is uh, the case of the disappearance of Somtai Mila Paichit. And that case, which amazingly, so his, his widow and his children brought a case um, in the criminal court against the five police officers who were suspected of being involved in the disappearance. Um, that case, there were some convictions, but one of the police sort of disappeared. Um, it seemed like to live somewhere else, uh, but that was unclear. Um, one of the, the people who testified as eyewitnesses in the case were, um, were subject to threats of various kinds. Um, his widow, Ankana Nila Paichit, uh, herself was constantly harassed throughout the time of the trial. And then... Sorry, when, what, what year was that? So he was disappeared um, in, on March 12th, 2004. And then right. the trial it finished... It took a long time. It was six or seven years. I can't remember wow. if it finished in, okay. in 2010 or 2011, but it went, through all, it went through all three stages. It went to the Supreme Court. And in that case, the, the, the part I found most disturbing is that the Supreme Court ruled ultimately that because there was no body, um, this couldn't be, a, this can't be a murder case because Thailand, there is no category of disappearance in Thai law. There's a draft law out there, but it hasn't been passed yet. So, um, so because of that, uh, the case was instead examined as a case of theft and kidnapping um, as opposed to a murder case. Um, and the court then ultimately ruled that um, because it was brought by, it was brought by the family as well as the prosecutor they ultimately ruled the family could not be a party because in order to be a party, they, within Thai criminal procedure, they had to be, um, they had to be, there had to be, a, there had to be a victim. Um, and on the crimes of theft and kidnapping, um, that, that isn't considered a grave enough crime that you, that you have someone who is, um, who has experienced losses great enough to be a party. And it just seemed to me that that extra, it's bad enough that they didn't hold the police accountable, but that extra piece of saying to the family, you can't, you can't call for justice, um, was particularly violent. Um, you know, in other cases, when people who have been tortured have tried to bring criminal cases or tried to make complaints, um, often they meet with, sometimes they meet with an, you know, an attempt to do mediation so that the information doesn't, be, doesn't become public. Um, 
often they experience threats. Um, in one sort of particularly egregious case, actually one of Sumtai uh, Paichit's clients who had been tortured, who he had been bringing a petition on at the time he was disappeared, that person was ultimately prosecuted for allegedly giving false information to a state official because what happened is they submitted a petition um, calling for justice in the case of having been tortured to to various state agencies, including the Counter-Corruption Commission, which despite its name deals with all sorts of, all wrongdoings of, of state officials. And the Counter-Corruption Commission ultimately decided that the torture did not take place, that there wasn't enough evidence saying that it had taken place. One of the policemen named in that complaint brought a defamation and false information. So they kind of countersued, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately got, he was, um, the case took a long time to make it through the court. Um, He was found innocent by the court of first instance, guilty and sentenced to two years, but suspended sentence by the appeal court. And then the Supreme Court went back to the court of first instance decision and said, no, 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 you you can't. (laughs) You can't sue someone for making a, you can't, criminally prosecute someone for for making for making a complaint it's all to say it's securing accountability is incredibly difficult there's both the official methods of shutting things down within you know within the law within the judicial system um within the state apparatus and then all of the unofficial threats and harassment um because you 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 seem to you bring up a lot of sort of um case studies of victims of the state um, I, uh, through your um, research. How, in your research, did you speak to like representatives of the police, representatives of local authorities and, and such and such? No. No. Um, I, you Is there know, any reason? Is, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they speak enough. Um, <laughs> and so, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like, I mean, there's, there's another sort of answer to that question, which is that um, in the context of doing research, gender matters a lot. And I'm the wrong gender to do research on the police or military in Thailand. Um, <laughs> it's because that kind of research, if you talk to people who do it, whether you're talking about Thailand or the police or military anywhere, the way people do it is by becoming friends with them. Um, <laughs> the act of killing being a good example, right? Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So not that I think they don't have something valuable to say, but I'm not going to be yeah. part of. Yeah. Um, there's also something that I'm quite curious about uh, regarding the police and the Thai legal system, which is that there seems to be this very suspicious trend, which I've noticed ever since I first was curious about Thailand before I even moved there. And it's that whenever you have Typically, this happens a lot with um, terrorist attacks, like the very, very small terrorist attacks. I'm talking like some small bomb in a bin somewhere in a car park that nobody pays attention to. Um, Someone will get arrested immediately and then immediately confess. And this happens with murders a lot, too. You see it if you read the daily news wherever you there's, you know, it's quite a lot of murders and people always or very often the police will apprehend the the murderer and they will confess immediately apparently and they'll go to jail and it's always a happy ending i mean it looks incredibly suspicious and i'm wondering through your work if you've looked at this kind of phenomenon before if you know what i mean um i haven't looked at it in a in a 
really serious way, but anecdotally, um, you know, there's all sorts of very concerning things that happen. Uh, things like the police will arrest someone and say, don't talk to a lawyer, don't talk to the press, and things will go better for you. Um, also, you know, the pressure to confess is really high because the sentence is automatically halved if you confess. So if, if you're convinced that you're going to be convicted, which I suspect that what police say to people who don't realize that they have a right to a lawyer and that, you know, that the Lawyers Council of Thailand will appoint one for them if they can't, you know, if they can't afford one. Um, I think when someone says to you, you know, if you, if you try to fight the case, it's going to go badly for you. So just, I'm, you know, I know I've had friends tell me stories of people who are arrested on, in various political cases where the pressure to confess was huge and the pressure not to talk to a lawyer was huge, um, you know, by, by the police. And in that sense, I think some of the, some of the most important legal education that happened in, in the protests last year actually were just really small acts of things like Thai Lawyers for Human Rights say, you know, distributing flyers and posting infographics saying, if you get arrested, this is what you should do. <laughs> um, because if, I think in that moment, which is getting arrested is really scary. So knowing like, okay, these are, the, these are the three things I need to do. This is who I need to call. This is what my right is. And I think that the lack of that, um, you know, gets used by the police in Thailand. I think it gets used by the police everywhere. Um, you know, the, in the U.S. context, there's in every sort of film about the U.S., you know, you always, I mean, the police in films always read people their rights when they're being arrested. In practice, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> the number of times where it comes out that people weren't read, you know, their 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 rights as they were being arrested is incredible. Um, yeah. yeah is, is that the law that people have read their rights in Thailand? I, I don't actually know. Um, yeah, they are supposed to be. So, supposed to be. So actually, you see, it's interesting when there's now there's more um, in some of the arrests that took place. Uh, at the end, middle to end of last year, when the arrests were recorded by, you know, sort of by, by the police and by all sorts of other people, it was actually very, um, they were very, they were very careful to be very complete in their reading of people's rights to them as they were, you know, as they were being arrested. So, yeah, sorry, speaking of the, you mentioned the current protest movement, and um, I found it quite fascinating to see like the first time during those protests, the first time they were sprayed by the water truck in Bangkok, they were so outraged. Like a lot of the protesters who were, you know, very young, probably, you know, the first few protests they've been on, they, they couldn't believe the police would do that to them. And you saw, you know, on Twitter and stuff, they were calling for the United Nations to come and intervene. And, you know, it's a bit silly. Um, and for me, what I couldn't believe is that given Thailand's long history of very extreme violence by the police and the military against protesters, I couldn't believe how shocked they were. So I guess my question is, in your opinion, do you think this is a sign of maybe because the protesters now who are in the streets of Bangkok are a bit more middle class? Um, and a bit more highly educated. Do you think that they're kind of maybe waking up to state violence in Thailand a little bit more so than before? 
Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, and I think you see it. Um, I think you see it in the the real, actually, the shift in the interest of in violence in the past. So, like that you saw in the protests um, that people were talking about the 6th of October, that people were talking about April, May 2010 and the violence against the red shirts, that people were talking about violence in the South. Um, yeah, talk by. Yeah, it was really, it was like, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable thing. You know, there was a, um, for the, uh, the commemoration of 6th October at Tamasat that was held this past year, there was a, um, there's a museum project commemorating the massacre and they did this really amazing sort of on-site installation in um, in the large auditorium hall, sort of in the entry to it using um, using AR to um, to recreate um, some of the sort of some of the really like some of the things that happened and then but then also had sort of a more traditional so tradition. Do you mean VL? No, um, augmented reality. No, Augmented What's reality. AR? Yeah. Oh my God. It's, it's, it's more levels. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, more, so they. It's more levels. Sorry, apologies. My, yeah, I'm not a tech boomer. Yeah. So, so, it was people were able to sort of standing in this place where, they, where you could, you were in proximity to places where violence had occurred. Um, you used this iPad and then sort of aimed the iPad at these things i don't know what you call them like icon like they were sort of icon qr code type things but they weren't qr codes i they were some kind of image and then you would see through the ipad images of the violence but overlaid onto the current the current landscape that you were looking at through because it was using the camera of the ipad um what was (laughs) it was what was incredible about it was there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people who went to this to this um, to this event. In fact, they were only planning to be open. It's a really small group of volunteers who organized it. They were planning on not being open for a long time. They had to extend. Um, and a friend who was involved was explaining to me that she, you know, she as she was present, she would listen to the conversations people were having. And many of the people who came were high school students, university students, and and they were all really sort of compelled and moved by what they were seeing. This is an amazing thing because I can tell you in just to like sort of to come back to, to Northern Thailand briefly, um, the if you asked, you know, and the vast majority of university students um, on the CMU campus in uh, you know in two thousand three or two thousand four, even even if you didn't ask about what had happened in Chiang Mai, and actually now there's a pretty strong consciousness of what happened in Chiang Mai among current university students. But even if you just said you know what do you know about fourteen October? What do you know about six October? Most people might tell you you know sort of the six lines they had read about fourteen October in their social sciences textbook in high school, and that would be it um, so I think there's been a massive shift that's great you, you said you mm. said the six lines like jokingly, but it actually I've read the, the <laughs> curriculum it is like six lines based, so yeah, yeah yeah <laughs> oh, the government the state. <laughs> 
I do, it is great that people, you know, maybe are waking up to this history of state violence towards civilians. But, you know, I, I mean, at the same time, you know, you mentioned about Chiang Mai, we were talking to someone from Daodin last week, and she's, she's from Sakon, Sakon Nakon. And um, she only found out two years ago, she said, that her grandfather was a communist who was disappeared by the state. And even her parents hadn't even told her. And that's kind of the level of repression. It's, it's within families it's repressed. That's kind of how deep it is. And then even that on a very, you know, micro level, um, you, you can kind of zoom out. And even talking about, you know, Black May in 92, like lots of people don't know about it. It's very strange. Like even, you know, university degree people. I tell you what, people in Isan, they know about it, but they maybe don't know the details. But... Yeah, I, I still think there is quite a gulf there between the classes in terms of knowing not just the impact of state violence, but the fact that it's actually happened in the past and is still happening. I do think there is a class divide there. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, we're getting um, we're getting interesting when we're bringing up knowledge imbalances and inequality. In class, knowledge. Yeah. So we, <laughs> that's what we do. On we've this transcended show. <laughs> the need for material analysis. Let's get to let's talk about pedagogy of the oppressed. What? <laughs> so, um, yeah, just to bring this to a close uh, and referencing um, your, the introduction of of the book we mentioned, um, you reference uh, James Scott, um, who we at Dindan and are big fans of. Big fans. Big, fa- big fans. Um, we love it. And so, you know, when you when you say what he says is um, uh, regarding a memory of resistance and courage that made Lion wait for the future, um, you know, it's like everything we've just talked about just now is part of the Thai collective memory or whatever. I, I'm not familiar with these kinds of studies. All of this has been is part of Thai history and it is part of the Thai identity to, to some extent or another, no matter how much you try and detach yourself from it. Um, and I just think that it's incredibly important going forward that we continue to uncover um, information and tell stories that you, stories that you've been telling um, that need to be told because of this continued and sustained repression by the state and by the state apparatuses. So you know, to all of all listeners. Um, you know, go write a book or something. Now, uh, to- and and you know, <laughs> just just take a moment to you know think about who's not had a voice. Think, who who yeah? Who haven't you heard about? You know, that's the real. Think question. about the victims, yeah. the, the unnamed victims of of which there are countless who we we have no idea. Uh, even their families don't know. Like I mentioned before. I mean, we started with them. the with the yellow posters, right? Now we gotta get to talk about their stories in full depth, and uh, mm. yeah. yeah. So, um, fr- from all of us, uh, thank you, Terrell, uh, thank you for so coming. Much. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the questions. <laughs> You're so welcome. Okay. Right. So, so that's it for this week, folks, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye.